You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Ladies and gentlemen, Real Paranormal Activity is proud to present Terry's Mysterious Moments. Welcome to Season 2 of Terry's Mysterious Moments. Thank you for listening to the show. I hope you find something interesting. Or maybe something spooky. Or maybe something just... Mysterious. This is Terry with Terry's Mysterious Moments, episode 22 of the second year. So we're almost halfway through our second year on this show. I'm excited. Last week on my previous show, I discussed some of Earth's natural mysteries. Tonight I want to look at a few more, but this time I want to talk about some mysteries that science and its inflated self-ego have just absolutely taken all the fun out of. Dang it. Let's look at the Bermuda Triangle. I've spoken about the Bermuda Triangle before on the show. Told about some of the ships that went missing in there, some of the planes that went missing. And of course you've heard about the Bermuda Triangle for years if you've been alive. And it's that infamous body of water in the western part of the North Atlantic Ocean. And it stretches 700,000 square kilometers or 270,271 square miles between Florida, Bermuda, and Puerto Rico. Also known as the Devil's Triangle, the area features multiple shipping lanes and has claimed over a thousand lives in the last 100 years. Some people have put the blame on extraterrestrial invaders, capturing humans for study. They've blamed it on interdimensional vortices, even on oceanic flatulence, which is methane gas that rises up from the bottom of the ocean. Basically, the ocean farts. There is a new theory, though. Experts at the University of Southampton believe the mystery of the lost ships, at least, can be explained by the natural phenomenon known as rogue waves. Rogue waves, which only last for a few minutes, were first observed by satellites in 1997 off the coast of South Africa. Appearing on a Channel 5 documentary, The Bermuda Triangle Enigma, the scientists used indoor simulators to recreate the monster water surges. 
The research team built a model of the USS Cyclops, which was a huge vessel that went missing in the Triangle in 1918, claiming 300 plus lives. And I've told the story of the Cyclops and its sister ships before on the show. And because of its construction, its sheer size and its flat base, it does not take long before the model is overcome with water during the simulation. Dr. Simon Boxall, an ocean and earth scientist, says that the infamous area in the Atlantic can see three massive storms coming together from different directions. The perfect storm, if you will, are the perfect conditions for a rogue wave. Boxall believes such a surge in water could snap a boat such as the Cyclops in two. He said, there are storms to the south and the north which come together. And if there are additional storms from Florida, it can be a potentially deadly formation of rogue waves. They are steep. They are high. We've measured waves in excess of 30 meters. But the Bermuda Triangle, like many mysteries, may have many explanations and may have many theories. And one of them comes from another scientist or another group of scientists. And they say that strange clouds forming above the Bermuda Triangle could explain why dozens of ships and planes have mysteriously vanished in the notorious patch of sea. The remarkable new theory suggests the clouds are linked to 175 mile per hour air bombs capable of bringing down planes and wrecking ships. Now the riddle could finally be solved after meteorologists speaking to the science channels what on earth revealed their findings. Using radar satellite imagery, they discovered bizarre hexagonal shaped clouds between 20 and 50 miles wide forming over the dodgy patch of water. A meteorologist named Dr. Randy Cervani said the satellite imagery is really bizarre with the hexagonal shapes of the cloud formations. These types of hexagonal shapes over the ocean are in essence air bombs, he added. They're formed by what are called microbursts and they're blasts of air that come down out of the bottom of the cloud and then hit the ocean. They say the blasts of air are so powerful they can reach 170 miles per hour, a hurricane-like force easily capable of sinking ships and downing planes. There is an older explanation. Again, the Bermuda Triangle being that area in the Atlantic between Bermuda, Puerto Rico, and Miami. And as I said before when I discussed the Bermuda Triangle, there are those who even give it a larger area that goes somewhere from the Gulf of Mexico all the way over to England and then back down deeper into the South Atlantic. It took on a cloak of mystery after World War II due to claims that ships and planes had gone missing under mysterious circumstances without leaving a trace. The mystery was perhaps solved in 1975 or at least a solution was suggested when Larry Cush, a research librarian at Arizona State University, discovered that some of the claims about disappearances were overblown or completely false. He found that the region doesn't have an unusual number of shipwrecks 
or plane crashes compared to any other area experiencing similar traffic. However, the Gulf Stream current is strong enough to disperse any evidence of fallen ships or planes, which likely added to the folklore of the area. So, a bit of mystery remains. Why make up stories about natural disasters? Moving on. Stonehenge. Of the many mysteries surrounding the whys and wherefores of Stonehenge, the ancient mystery of who built Stonehenge has been solved according to a breakthrough study. A groundbreaking new analysis of the 25 cremated remains buried at the prehistoric monument in Wilshire has revealed that 10 of them lived nowhere near the blue stones. Now apparently the blue stones are the big rocks that form a circle. Didn't come from anywhere around where Stonehenge is. So they thought maybe these people had brought them in and then died or something. Instead, these people came from Western Britain and half of those 10 possibly came from 140 miles away in Southwest Wales where the earliest Stonehenge monoliths have also been traced back to. The remaining 15 could be locals from the Wiltshire area or descendants of migrants from the west. It's also likely that they were potentially a mix of men and women and that they were of high social status, claim the experts in a new study. In all the cases, it is unclear if the individuals died shortly before all or parts of their cremated remains were transported to Stonehenge or whether they were respected ancestors who had died several generations earlier. Though the team of scientists, led by researchers from the University of Oxford, can't guarantee that the remains are of people who actually built the monument, the earliest cremation dates are described as tantalizingly close to the date when the blue stones were brought in to form the first stone circle. The key breakthrough was that high temperatures of cremation can crystallize the skull storing the chemical signal of its origins. While previous studies have concentrated on Stonehenge's construction, including the sourcing of the stones and their transport from over 100 miles away in modern-day Pembrokeshire, very little has been unearthed about the individuals who built it. The new study, published in the journal Scientific Reports, shows that both people and materials were flowing between areas around 5,000 years ago and that some of these people stayed put in the region. When they passed away, their cremated remains were placed under the ancient monument in what is now Wiltshire. The earliest bones have been dated to about 3000 BC and then span a range of about 500 years. John Pouncett, a lead author of the study, said, The range of dates raises the possibility that for centuries people could have been brought to Stonehenge for burial with the stones. Co-author Dr. Christoph Sneck demonstrated that cremated bone faithfully retains its strontium isotope composition. He said that about 40% of the cremated individuals did not spend their later lives on the Wessex chalk where their remains were found. The cremated remains from Stonehenge were first excavated by Colonel William Hawley in the 1920s from a network of 56 pits dotted around the inner circumference and the ditch of the monument known as Aubrey holes. Hawley then reburied them at the site to be dug up at a later date. Pouncet, a spatial technology officer at Oxford's School of Archaeology, 
said the research gives us a new insight into the communities who built Stonehenge. The cremated remains from the enigmatic Aubrey Holes, an updated mapping of the biosphere, suggests that people from the Priscelli Mountains not only supplied the blue stones used to build the stone circle, but moved with the stones and were buried there too, he added. That's a mystery that I really didn't know existed. But I, I would say, yeah, that is a good question. Now if they could just figure out why the things were built. Our next story is about moving rocks in Death Valley. If you've been around any length of time, you probably understand about the gliding rocks that are in the upper desert of Death Valley. It's called the Racetrack Playa, and it's in California's Death Valley. And it is striped with hundreds of carved out trails from large rocks, even though nobody has pushed them or have they witnessed the rocks moving. Scientists solve the mystery of these traveling rocks by fitting them with GPS units using time-lapse cameras and studying weather in the playa. Though Death Valley is notorious for blistering summertime heat, winter is mild and rain can collect to form a lake several centimeters deep, that's a couple of inches. When the temperature drops overnight, the water freezes into thin sheets of ice. The ice is then warmed by the sun the next morning. It breaks it into smaller plates. When one of these plates is under a rock, the wind and water flow push the rock very slowly. Traveling about 224 meters or 730 feet during the winter season. This motion makes a trail in the mud which later dries to record evidence of the rock's journey. More info on this, from the 1940s till recently, the racetrack Playa, which is indeed a dry lake bed with a flat surface in Death Valley National Park, was the setting for these sailing stones that people found mysterious. With years or even decades between each occurrence, an unseen force appeared to move hundreds of rocks across the ground at the same time leaving long parallel trails in the dried mud. These sailing stones weighed up to 300 kilograms or 700 pounds each. I'm sorry, if you're from Europe or somewhere else that uses the metric system, you're going to have to do the figuring from now on. I'm not going to use the metric system anymore. I'm in Texas. <laughs> no one has even seen the stones in motion as far as scientists knew. So a team of U.S. researchers decided to investigate in 2011. They set up time-lapse cameras and a weather station to measure the wind gust. Then they installed motion-activated GPS tracking on 15 limestone rocks and set them out on the playa. The bad thing about this, it could have taken 10 years or more before something happened, but they got lucky. In December 2013, the team was there in person when the stones sailed and the mystery was solved. Heavy rain and snow had left three inches of water on the playa. It froze at night into thin sheets that broke up into larger floating panels under the midday sun. Light winds of about 10 miles an hour were needed for the accumulated ice to push the rocks across the playa, leaving tracks in the mud beneath the icy surface. The trails became visible months later when the lake bed dried out. The rocks will only move if conditions are perfect. Not too much wind, sun, water, or ice. Not too little either. Quoting researcher Jim Norris, 
it's possible that tourists have actually seen this happening without realizing it. It's really tough to gauge that a rock is in motion if all the rocks around it are moving also. You know, I've been seeing stories about the racetrack playa for years and I thought that was very interesting. It's an odd natural occurrence that if you see the, the tracks left by the rocks, you have to wonder if somebody's up there dragging them around and, and just pulling a prank or if it's just natural, but now they've decided it's a natural incidence. Last week I talked about a story about ringing rocks up in Pennsylvania. Well, here's a story about singing sand dunes. According to the story, there are 35 known sand dunes that emit a loud rumble that sounds like the low moan of a cello. The sound may last as long as 15 minutes and can travel up to 6 miles away. Some dunes sing occasionally, others daily. It happens when grains of sand slide down these particular dunes. At first, scientists thought the tones came from vibrations in the dunes' subsurface layers but researchers found that they could recreate the sound in a lab by letting sand slide down an incline. That proves that the sand, not the dune, was singing. The sound came from the vibrations of the grains themselves as they cascaded down the dune or an inclined lab structure. Next, the researchers investigated why some singing sand dunes produced multiple notes at once. For this, they studied sand from two dunes, one in southwestern Morocco and the other in southeastern Oman. The Moroccan sand always produced sound at about 105 hertz, which is similar to a G-sharp two octaves below middle C. The Omani sand produced a range of nine notes from about F-sharp to D with frequencies from 90 to 150 hertz. The researchers discovered that the size of the grains was responsible for the pitch of the notes. The Moroccan grains were all about the same size, 150 to 170 microns. They consistently sounded like a G sharp. But the Omani grains ranged from 150 to 310 microns in size, which accounted for the broader range of their notes. When scientists isolated some of the Omani grains by size, their narrower range vibrated at one frequency to produce the same note. The speed of the moving sand was also a factor. When the grains were all close in size, they moved at similar speeds and consistently produced the same pitch. When the grains varied in size, they moved at different speeds, causing a greater range of notes. But scientists still don't understand why these tones sound like music. Their theory is that the vibration of the moving grains synchronize, pushing air together like the diaphragm in a loudspeaker. Okay, so if you're at the beach, plug into a dune, see what you can hear. Now this next story is relatively short, but I think it needs to be touched on. Back during the Russian Revolution, when the Bolsheviks took over, they kidnapped the Tsar's family. The Tsar, the Tsarina, and all the little Tsardines. And they took them 
to a place called Ekaterinaburg, took them into a house, and then at a point in time, they gathered them all in the cellar and supposedly killed them all. Well, that's terrible. You get rid of the people who were in charge when you take over. And some years later, a woman calling herself Anna Anderson surfaced in Europe and claimed to be the Tsar's youngest daughter, Anastasia. She said she had been carried from the execution site by mysterious benefactors. Though rejected by Romanov relatives, her saga was sufficiently intriguing that Hollywood made it into a 1956 movie starring Ingrid Bergman. Rumors persisted that the young heiress to the throne had somehow escaped death, and at this point you kind of wished maybe she had. But in 1991, the mystery took another turn when it was revealed that the bodies of most of the Romanovs and their servants lay in a mass grave in Ekaterinaburg, but the bodies of a male and a female child were missing. That faint hope that Anastasia had escaped was crushed in 2007 when archaeologists discovered a second grave containing two more youthful sets of bones. Like the first set, the new bones were matched with a sample of Nicholas II's DNA, which had been extracted from bloodstains on a shirt worn during an 1891 assassination attempt. With all the Romanovs accounted for, it's now clear that Anastasia died with her family. It's things like this that you're appreciative for science. You really are. You're appreciative because it develops medicines that we need. It comes up with solutions to problems that we have. Scientists, historical scientists, can go through evidence and tell us what happened at a certain time, you know, certain place. But sometimes science just takes the fun out of stuff. That's not a nice thing, but hey, we live and learn, literally. Now, for those of you who like ghost stories, I'm going to tell you something that I heard when I was a child. I used to stay up late because I could watch talk shows and, and documentaries and things. And some of these talk shows back in the late 60s really dealt a lot with the paranormal, especially the ones that were on later at night. And this story was told about this young boy that had been injured or gotten sick. Somehow he was paralyzed from like the chest down. He could move his arms, but barely. Well, he's laying in the hospital at night. Everybody's gone home. The hospital is dark. And he hears the sound of a child playing, bouncing a ball. And he just says out loud, can you please stop bouncing that ball? I'm trying to go to sleep. And the ball bounces up onto the bed and rolls up by his hand. Well, it's right there, so he picks it up and uses all of his strength to toss it back off the bed. Now please, go to bed. I need to go to sleep. A little bit more giggling a little later on, and the ball bounces back up on the bed again. But this time it's just a little further away. So he kind of has to stretch for it. But he gets it, and with his strength, throws it off the bed. A few minutes later, he hears the giggle again, and the ball comes up onto the bed, but it's even further away from him this time. Well, this continues several times during the night, and each time he has to stretch farther until all of a sudden he actually sits up in bed to get the ball and throw it down the ward. 
and he realizes something and he lays back down and all is silent ball doesn't come up on the bed anymore he doesn't hear the giggling and he doesn't hear the ball bouncing so he goes to sleep the next morning when his parents and the doctor come in to check on him and the nurses have already been in several times he says something about the little ball he, he said there was a kid playing all night long up and down the hall he kept throwing a ball onto my bed well what did you do with the ball well I would throw it back to him he said well how do you feel having done that he said well I feel okay and he he said I can do this now and he sat up and they were amazed because he supposedly couldn't move from the middle of the chest down so they did a lot of tests on him found out that feeling was coming back to his body he could move his legs eventually and move his feet and eventually he got out of the hospital and he could walk again. Uh, of course he had crutches for a while and, and he worked his way up to walking without them. But when his parents asked him, said, tell us about this, this child you were playing with. He said, well, I never saw the child. He said, but I can tell you what the ball looked like. And he described the ball in detail, size, color, design. And his mother turned white and his father just shook his head and he said, well, what's wrong? What's, what's wrong with that description? And his father looked at him and looked at his mother. The mother nodded her head. And he told the story that this young man had an older brother that he never knew who died before he, he reached the age of being able to understand that there was somebody else in the family and said that when he died, his favorite toy was this little ball and the father described it just like the son had and he said well that that's kind of strange but don't you think there are that many balls like that around and he said well the thing is we buried this one with him because he was his favorite toy i want to take this time to thank those of you who wished me a happy birthday yesterday was my birthday and i appreciate that I'm officially old now, so thank you to the listeners who took the time to wish me happy birthday. Well, that's about all I have for this week. I hope you enjoy this one. I enjoyed bringing it to you, and please remember that on Mondays you listen to Aaron Hunter as he presents listener stories or interviews on Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast. You listen on Tuesday to Aaron Frail as he does Aaron's Horror Show. You listen on Wednesdays for me with Terry's Mysterious Moments. And on occasional Thursdays, you get to listen to Patrick Sean Jones as he presents The Sandman Lullaby. Of course, you can go to your app store, be it Apple or Android, and look for the Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast app. For your phones or tablets you can download that and that way you don't have to go searching for our shows they'll be in one place so remember all that you can contact me at terry's mysterious moments on facebook or at terry's mysterious moments at gmail.com i'd love to hear from you uh, even if you just want to say hi that's fine if you want to tell me a story that i can relate 
I'll do that too. I'd love to hear stories from the listeners. I would love to tell the stories from the listeners. So we'll talk to you next time, okay? Bye-bye.